Welcome to Courting Cyber. I'm Carlisle, and in this podcast, I'm taking you on my journey as I seek to learn about the wonderful but challenging field of cybersecurity. I plan to release monthly episodes demonstrating my learning journey. So what I'll do is, I'll set up the mic as I read, watch videos and practice, then I'll record my thoughts about what I've just learned. This is going to be raw, so be prepared. However, if you hear an error I've made, let me know. I want to grow and all of the help is appreciated. I need your help. The new topic I'll be going through is pass the hash. Nope, not being rude and asking you to give me something without saying please. It's an actual attack that affects the Windows operating systems. So what we'll be doing in this exercise is, first of all, we've been informed that pass the hash attack works similarly to a normal password logon. So first of all, we're going to see what the differences are between a normal logon, a normal password logon versus a pass the hash logon. The first thing that we're going to be doing is using the PS exec remote login. PS exec is a tool that developed by sysinternals that extends the existing features of Windows, right? It's mainly used by system administrators and power users. PSExec allows you to run arbitrary remote commands. So the first thing I did was I logged on to a remote computer using PSExec. Um, and it, this was done normally using password, username, and the remote computer's name. Now on to a pass the hash login. So we use a tool called Mimikatz to help with this. What we're going to do here now is we're going to try to log into a user account using the hash. Right? We don't know the password, we only know the hash. And this is what pass hash login is about. So first of all, we open Mimikatz and then we set the privilege to debug. Then we enter um, certain parameters um, using a secure S-E-K-U-R-L S-E. I don't know if that's just, <laughs> I tried looking for it, but I didn't see like if that's like an abbreviation or anything. Anyway, using that tool, we can set the path. First of all, we specify it's a PTH attack. So we use PTH, then we input the user account name, the domain name, and then we also input the hash. After we do that and we execute that command, a shell is loaded, right? I think this is what it's called. Um, a shell is spawned. <laughs> I've always wanted to know what that means. Oh, a shell is spawned. What does that mean? Anyway, so what happens is automatically another command prompt window opens, but this window opens with the permissions of the user. Alright, so remember we entered a user in the Mimikatz tool? Good. So the new command window that opens has the same permissions as that user. And to prove this, we then, within the new command prompt window that was spawned, we try to log into the domain controller again and guess and execute a command and we got through. So the patch the hash attack worked. Now we're going to look in the logs to see how the two logon events looked like. What we did, we used get win events in PowerShell, using the PowerShell query to check for the events related to the various users that we logged on as. And we were asked whether there was a different ID, whether the logon event had a different event ID. And the answer is no. So the PTH login and the normal login both looked the same to the system. So let me back up a bit to clarify what I just said. So basically I was looking the computer name. So we logged on to the domain controller, right? So that was the computer name that we specified within the PowerShell query. 
Because when we looked at the security log relating to logon events on the domain controller, we saw that they both had the same event ID, which was 4624, which specifies a, spe um, a successful logon. However, we need to dig deeper to be able to determine the difference between the two types of logons. So it's not, it's all is not lost. It's not just, all is not lost. So if we look on the desktop itself, where the login originated from, we can see the difference in the logins. So Windows Logon Event 4624 contains a logon type value, and that records how the credentials were obtained. All right. So logon type 9 is relevant to pass the hash since it leaves a cached interactive logon type 9. So what this means is when the user logs on using the hash, it's as if the user is logged on using cached credentials. And this is how you can see, this is how you can tell the difference between a pass the hash logon and a regular logon, all right? Because if it's a regular logon, your credentials aren't cached. You just type it in as they are, and then you go through the authentication process. But by using a, using a hash, right? Using a hash value, that, that, that's quite similar to using cached credentials. After learning how to recognize a pass the hash authentication method by scanning the security logs we were told to look for any other accounts that authenticated using pass the hash so i used a use an xpath query and i filter by logon type 9 which is specific to cached credentials right which can point to pass the hash authentication so when i did that i found an account that authenticated using pass the hash method so now the scenario is this account was compromised. I need to reset the password. So I did that using the net user command. Now on to Linux system information gathering. Firstly, a few commands to help determine the version of the kernel. So we use the uname command. And also the Linux distribution version commands. For example, LSB underscore release were introduced. Then we answered a few questions about finding out some information about Linux distro that's being used. Now for gathering hardware information. There is the list hardware command lshw and with this command line utility you can get detailed reports about hardware components such as memory capabilities, CPU stats and cache configuration. So I've just learned and used multiple commands to help with hardware information and memory information. So learn commands to find information about disk drive information, about mount points, about memory information. So commands such as lshw taxi memory list block were used to help answer the questions. Now I've moved on to commands to gather information about processes. So learn to use top h top pgrep and the ps command. So for example, the question asks, what's the process ID for cron? So if I do pgrep cron, I found the process ID. And then the next question asks, what is the full path of the cron command? So then I use the ps command with the process ID that I found from the previous command. And that will help me to find more information about the process that I'm interested in. So, a bit of an update before I move forward. Remember I was having major issues with completing the Procmon module and I had a conspiracy theory that maybe the box or the activity was broken. 
Well, it turns out that I was correct. Okay, so Range Force updated the module and then they added some things. For example, the scenario included cut pictures. Before, there were no cut pictures to be seen. After it was updated, I was able to complete the module. So that's so, <laughs> that's so satisfying. Oh gosh, because I spent hours trying to get this thing to work and I had no idea why it wasn't working. So thankfully, it works now. Cheers, Range Force. Now we move on to Splunk. Alright, yeah. And I'm really excited to do this because I've often seen Splunk on various job descriptions and things like that. So at least now I'll get some hands-on experience with this tool. So in our organization, in this scenario, our Splunk instance is fed by web transactions, database activity, and system security logs. So the first thing I've done here is I've been taught how to navigate Splunk. Splunk is organized into a number of apps, each of which can contain separate datasets, dashboards, and configuration options. So first of all, I started with looking at the search and reporting section. Now I'm going to be moving on to building basic queries. One of the first types of searches that you can do within Splunk is term search. And this is quite simple as you can use a keyword or a term and this can be searched across all event payloads so what I did was we selected all time in the time picker and then we typed in field and we looked at the failed events that were, that were logged and within the logs you can see the time the events occurred time and date you were able to see the host the source of the log um, the IP address from which the event occurred the port the protocol used there are three fields found in every Splunk event. First of all, there is a host field. These would typically be the host name, IP address, or fully qualified domain name of the network host from which the event originated. Then it would be the source. Within this field, you can find the name of the file or stream from which the event originates. So if the event originated from a file or a directory, you'd get the full path. However, if the event originated from a network-based data source, you have the protocol and the port within the source field. And then the third field that's present on every Splunk event would be the source type. The source type determines how the data is formatted, right? So for example, if your source type can be from like a Cisco syslog. In the previous activity, we used a simple search term. So we used one word, which was failed to look for failed events. So now we're going to add an additional word to it. So now we're going to add roots. We're looking for failed events that also include the term root. So when we're using multiple terms, multiple search terms, Splunk doesn't care about the order or the position within the payload. However, if you need, if that's important to you, you should put quotation marks around it and that would keep it in a particular order. The user interface is quite simple, so now that I have got the hang of some basic searches and what the user interface looks like, we'll be moving on to looking at filters and queries within Splunk. So one important search criteria is filtering by time. And this can be done in Splunk by, you can, there's a graphical interface that allows you to select various days. So I've just completed some exercises by filtering by time, filtering by date range, and filtering by date and time range. It's quite intuitive. 
know to use Splunk to query using fields. So searching for terms is useful. However, most of the data coming into Splunk is structured with field names, which provides a much more powerful way to filter and transform data based on specific metadata. In the Splunk instance that we have, it's loaded with some web access requests, which have many parsed fields. So we're going to explore this. There are five fields that are automatically assigned to every Splunk event, right? These fields are timestamp, host, source, source type, and index. The index field is where Splunk has stored the data. Source type is the Splunk metadata configuration for parsing fields. And the other three are self-explanatory. Now, field searching. Depending on the source type, events will have additional fields indicating their structured data. These may be defined by key value pairs, CSV columns, position in the line, etc. Fields allow for more precise filtering than general terms since they have metadata or structure to differentiate types. For example, you can be able to specify source address versus destination IP address. Now I'm moving on to fields and transforms within the Splunk module. And the first section of this is Boolean searches. So with multiple search terms within Splunk, it implicitly does a logical AND of them, but you can also use OR and NOT operators to help get more advanced results. By default, source, host, and source type are selected fields. However, these can be changed based on the data set or, or your needs at the time. So I've covered the basic forms of searching across events and filtering to specific results. Now I'm going to move on to transforming commands and this can be used to further analyze and visualize the data. So I've been using what, what's called generating commands and this creates data, data sets and filters interesting results, right? So now I'm going to connect these generating commands by using a pipe operator which can help in more powerful analysis. Firstly, there is a top command which returns a table summarizing a given field with counts and percentages of the most common values. When running transformation commands, you would notice that the statistics tab of the results is where the, where the results would be populated, right? So this brings us to the topic of search mode. So there are three search modes within Splunk and the transforms would highlight this. So in the verbose mode, both the events and statistics tabs would be highlighted right in the smart mode either the events or the statistics tab would be highlighted so the statistics tab would be highlighted if it's if it's a transform command or the events mode would be highlighted if it's not and then the fast mode is generally used for dashboards and reports because it'd be very efficient and very expensive scans very expensive searches are being run so this would be the most efficient way to generate the results Another transform command that we're going to look at is rare. And rare is the opposite of top. So top would give you the most popular event, whereas rare would give you the least common results. That would default to showing you the top 10 least results in ascending order. One other 
powerful transform command is stats. This allows for the computation of statistics associated with datasets. And the count command is coupled with the stats or part of the stats suite, which, will, which displays a single number. And this command displays a single number of results with no other arguments. Now we're on to Splunk visualizations. Within Splunk, we can visualize data from Splunk events, notice various trends, and also build dashboards. And these things would help us to be able to monitor the threats in the environment because sometimes it can be hard to understand what's going on, but by visualizing them in specific ways would help us to be better, help us to better monitor our network. So the first thing we're going to do to explore visualizations in Splunk is by creating a dashboard. So the dashboard would help us to be able to add various panels and charts, which could help us to visualize our data in different ways. To create an empty dashboard within Splunk, you first of all go to the search and reporting app. Then you choose dashboards and then create new dashboard. You then enter the title of the dashboard and you can set the permission of the dashboard. So we set our permission to private. Now we're given a scenario to help us with the visualization activity. So we're gonna be creating a pie chart, okay? So there is the Angels and Scooters server and a malicious actor is trying to brute force this server. However, brute forcing is very noisy, so there are lots of information within the logs and it's easily detectable. So we're gonna use these log events to visualize what this brute force attack would look like. One of our colleagues has already figured out that the hacker is trying to brute force SSH. Okay, so we're going to match the string field and the source type would be auth, right? A-U-T-H, so an authentication event. The scenario continues. So we realize that there are many failed logins from multiple addresses. So this would mean that there are multiple attackers, most likely. So we're trying to figure out who is the most aggressive attacker, where most of the login attempts are coming from. Once we figure this out, we'll blacklist that IP. So we're using regular expression to extract the IP from the Splunk events. Good. So first of all, we use the same search that we, that we were using before, where the source type was auth, we matched the string field. They've given us an example of a regular expression function to use to help us extract IPs. Then after that, I use top to display which IP address the highest attempts came from. So now that I've figured out the query, to find the specific attacks, which would be the failed SSH login attempts. To prevent me from having to execute this query multiple times over and over and over, I can add it to the dashboard. Remember earlier we created an empty dashboard, so I'll be adding it to that dashboard and I'll be visualizing it as a pie chart. So first of all, um, I go to the visualization tab and within Splunk, that was already a column chart. I changed it to a pie chart and then I saved it as a panel to the dashboard. Now we're going to add a single value panel to the dashboard. We're going to be creating a single value panel for website errors. So this would help you to instantly know how many errors the website currently has. There, was a, there were some issues in completing the single value panel, but I managed to figure it out and get it done. So I added that panel to the dashboard. 
and it's a real-time panel so I'm able to see as the errors on the website increase within a certain period of time. Now we're going to create a bar chart to show the number of user agents. I mentioned during the brute forcing exercise that we were given a regular expression to extract the IP address field. However, so <laughs> thankfully that was given because I don't know to write regex, but I learned the basics um, a while back and I had a basic understanding of it, but that hasn't been practiced. But however, within Splunk, there's a wizard to help us to um, generate a regex, so to speak. So we're going to use it in this exercise. So this can be done first of all we need to go to the extract new fields wizard and then we will select regular expression and then once we've selected that we can select the particular attribute that we're looking for so for example if you're looking for ip addresses or in this case we're looking for user agents we select that within a random event then we validate it and then we can save it as a search to be used in the future so i've just completed the visualizations module. So I've created a dashboard that allows me to see the top user agents, field SSH logins, and recent website errors in real time. So I've built my first Splunk dashboard. You know, before I've always been hearing the term, oh, I've built a dashboard, I've built a dashboard, I've done this. And you have a concept of what a dashboard is, but it's really good that now I've had the chance to do it myself. And yeah, it's pretty cool and good that I've been able to do this. Now we'll be moving on to Splunk alerts. Alerts allow us to passively monitor for different types of security events and respond to them quickly. So the first type of alerts I look at is creating an authentication fail alert. So we will be looking for SSH login failures that notifies when these types of events happen. The first step to creating an alert is creating the search term. So I'll schedule an alert that will run every two minutes. So it'll be configured so that if the number of failed SSH logins is greater than 10, then a low priority alert will be created. So also a throttling would be implemented, which would suppress alert notifications for five minutes. So this means that I wouldn't be swamped with alerts. It would alert and then five minutes would be like a cooling off period and then it would alert again. I've just set up a real-time alert for if there is a 500 internal server error from a particular web page. However, if many users get this error, then the way I set up the alert would mean that I'll get I'll be bombarded with alerts and that's not ideal. And we know this is already a problem within SOX that there is alert fatigue, just too many alerts. So it's really important to know how to set up alerts that you're notified of the relevant events but you also need to set up the alerts so that you're not so they're not too verbose right you don't have too many so what, what i'm going to do is i'm going to implement throttling again but i'll do so based on a certain field so this means i'll only get an alert message if that field is unique so duplicates will be throttled for a chosen time period so if everyone in the organization is getting an internal server when they try to access the same web page I wouldn't be getting multiple alerts. I'll just get one alert because the field is the same. After updating the real-time alert that I made to include the URI path, I then configured the alert to throttle based on this field value. All right, so now that we have our alert set up, we need to know how to view the alerts. So that is what we're going to do now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Courting Cyber. 
If you have an opportunity for me or if you're in the same boat as I am and you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me at courtincyber at protonmail.com. That's courtincyber at protonmail.com or on Twitter at courtincyber.